Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing COVID as it transitions to an endemic stage and some of its most disconcerting afflictions. Today, specifically, we'll talk about long COVID, the post-acute sequela of COVID-19. It's a source of confusion long-term lingering or chronic symptoms. Sometimes we see a continuation of the initial disease process. Other times the symptoms resolve only to return and still other times after resolution of the initial infection, new symptoms develop. These conditions may limit our ability to enjoy a normal life or be life-threatening. And long COVID is a diagnostic conundrum uh, since To my knowledge, there is no test to diagnose long COVID, but rather a complex of symptoms. To help us through this maze, today we have two guest panelists. Number one is Dr. Ruby Sahu. Ruby is a hospitalist. She was a facility medical director and is currently a regional performance director. She is on the board of directors of the Society of Hospital Medicine and is faculty at Texas A&M. She is a physician scientist and a member of the Team Health Emerging Infectious Disease Task Force, initially formed in January of 2019. She has frequently taken a deep dive and shared complex medical processes in a straightforward way. Joining Ruby is Chris Song. Chris is a hospitalist and an assistant medical director. Uh, He is faculty at the Frank Netter School of Medicine and another superb member of the EID task force who doesn't accept easy answers, but always dig deeper. You both have spent hundreds of hours reviewing what is and isn't known. Thank you, Ruby. Thank you, Chris, for joining this program. Let me start with you, Dr. Sahu. What is long COVID? Is there a single definition that incorporates the multiple manifestations? Yeah, thanks, Rob. You know, that's a really good question. And the CDC actually defines uh, long COVID as the occurrence of new returning or ongoing health problems that occurs more than four weeks after the initial infection with SARS-CoV-2. The idea being any symptoms that occur prior to that four weeks is attributed to that initial infection. Uh, And over the, uh, the past couple of years since the pandemic began, We've had a lot of different names for this. So you, you may have heard it being referred to as either long COVID, long haul COVID. Um, I've seen post-acute COVID-19, post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, long-term effects of COVID, and even chronic COVID. So there are a lot of different terms out there in the literature, um, but essentially referring to the same process. Chris, it sounds like there are a lot of symptoms. Can you describe a few of those symptoms and How does one diagnose long COVID? Sure, Robin. Thanks again for having me. The symptoms truly range the the entire spectrum. Um, Really, almost anything that you could think of, any organ system could potentially be affected and could manifest, could be a manifestation of of long COVID. Uh, For example, Brain fog. This is one of the more common symptoms that's being re- reported by those suffering with long COVID. This uh, this this sense of of um, mental fatigue, uh, difficulty with memory, a general mental slowing, 
Um, also fatigue. Fatigue is one of the most frequent symptoms being reported, a general fatigue. And in particular, what's being called a post-exertional fatigue, that when individuals are exerting themselves physically or mentally, that they are experiencing extreme fatigue. Also, as one might expect with a respiratory infection, there are uh, a good number of individuals who are reporting dyspnea. That's the medical term for shortness of breath. So feeling short of breath with activities that they would, would have never experienced before. But again, those are the most common ones, but we're hearing about the loss, the continued loss of smell, gastrointestinal symptoms, and the like. And with respect to the diagnosis of long COVID, as Ruby mentioned, the duration is is important. Um, if it's within the first few weeks of of um, within from the onset of of the infection, that would not be considered long COVID. The thought is that it takes at least a few weeks to recover. But once you get to around that one month mark, you start wondering, is this something more? Usually, you'd be recovered by then. Now, with that said, there is some. There are different definitions as far as it comes to long COVID. Um, the CDC chose to have a, a more all-encompassing definition that would start at one month, whereas the WHO um, chose to define long COVID as occurring three months after the onset of symptoms. It's a diagnosis of exclusion. And so you have to evaluate for other causes. You have to make sure that this isn't being caused by some other condition um, and not necessarily uh, related to the original COVID-19 infection. Chris, I think these are all really good points. And especially for clinicians out there that are, are trying to diagnose it, it's so important to know what symptoms exist and, uh, and, and the difficulty surrounding um, accurate diagnosis of this condition. Um, I read a study that looked at um, over 200,000 uh, COVID-19 survivors and through the electronic health record found um, that within six months of the initial SARS-CoV-2 infection, a third of those, uh, of those individuals were experiencing neurologic or psychologic symptoms. Um, and a third of, of that amount is, is incredible to think about, but to have that significant neurologic decline, the cognitive decline or the brain fog, as you mentioned, um, or psychological symptoms such as anxiety, depression, PTSD and even psychosis, um, a, a third is pretty astounding. But um, you know, I'm curious to see what further studies show from from uh, you know COVID nineteen survivors. That's fascinating. It makes me think of uh, what people have described as chronic fatigue syndrome, that has been a diagnosis of exclusion for quite some time, but very often uh, by many clinicians. Uh, not considered a real diagnosis. And now we have a actual specific potential cause of that makes you wonder if other viral illnesses have caused what is being called chronic fatigue syndrome. So uh, let me ask uh, Ruby back to you. Uh, since there are so many different manifestations, can you describe some of the current theories on causes of long COVID? Sure, Rob, that's a great question. And unfortunately, there's not a straightforward answer just because we we still don't know for sure. There are a lot of theories surrounding why COVID, uh, long COVID occurs. Um, for example, there's, there's a theory that uh, after the initial COVID-19 
uh, occurs, um, there may be a, uh, a response where the body is producing an antibody that actually mimics the initial SARS-CoV-2 virion and triggers an autoimmune response. So the body is actually uh, attacking its own antibodies that are mimicking the initial virion. So it's kind of an interesting idea, but um, certainly exists in other entities. So it could be occurring uh, here that's resulting in long COVID. Um, there's also a theory that the, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is actually staying within the body and just persisting uh, and still continuing all the inflammatory changes and all the, the symptoms that it had initially um, uh, resulted in is just in a prolonged state at that point. Um, and we all know the significant organ damage that can occur, uh, multi-organ, uh, multiple organs that can be involved in the uh, when the SARS-CoV-2 infection occurs, um, and other possible causes that is just long-standing organ damage uh, that's resulting from the initial infection. Um, we also know that there are um, states where significant clot formation occurs. Um, and there is research that's suggesting microclots may be forming actually in the blood vessels, therefore blocking the blood flow and causing significant tissue damage. Uh, and we know that that significant um, amount of damage can occur certainly in different parts of the body, but can result in, in longstanding uh, symptoms that can affect that individual for um, potentially months or even years. Um, and lastly, there's a theory that um, the COVID-19 COVID-19 may actually disrupt the immune system and reactivate previously contracted viruses, um, such as Epstein-Barr virus that stay dormant in the body. So um, still, unfortunately, a lot of uh, theories out there, Rob, and certainly there could be multiple processes occurring in, in any individual, um, or there could be different processes that are, that are occurring in different individuals. Rob, I would echo and agree with everything that Ruby just said. Um, you know, and there was a recent study from a European respiratory journal that was looking at individuals one year into their diagnosis of long COVID. Um, and, and, you know, some good news was that most of those individuals had fortunately recovered at that point, that the long COVID was no longer affecting their lives. But what they interestingly found was that the individuals, individuals who had not recovered by that point, that they had higher levels, as Ruby was referring to, these autoantibodies, increased levels of autoantibodies, and these cytokines that I think the lay, the lay public has now heard a lot about over the last few years. And so there is, you know, it's, it's a, it's, we're really early. We, we um, the reality is we know very little, there are theories, but there is some exciting emerging evidence that is supporting these ideas. And one last thing I'd like to say about this is that um, we may be talking about therapies and or the lack, lack thereof. But one idea when it comes to the causes is that we may never find that there's one cause. It could be that all that Ruby just mentioned, that they all are contributing either in conjunction or maybe depending on the case, there could be different causes for different individuals. And, and, and the, the therapies that we have in the future may have to uh, adjust to that. So I want to dig a little deeper on that. And Ruby, I'm going to ask you to talk maybe for a minute or so a little bit more on the clot theory. I know you've done a lot of work on that. So Ruby, would you? Sure, absolutely, Rob. You know, there from the beginning of the pandemic, really, we um, as physicians saw a lot of uh, what we what was seen to be a hypercoagulable state for individuals that were affected with COVID-19. Um, and uh, certainly this isn't 
unique to COVID-19. This occurs in, in other um, uh, it can happen in other states as well, where someone can come in with um, another condition and have um, a, a sort of hypercoagulable state where they're forming blood clots um, spontaneously in areas and in times when they otherwise should not. Um, this is exactly what we were seeing with COVID-19 from the very beginning. Um, and there was a lot of thought behind what should we do as physicians? Should we be um, treating aggressively with blood thinners um, or is there a significant risk of bleed if we give that to patients that may not otherwise benefit from it? Um, so there was a, a lot of sort of back and forth uh, as research was very limited in the beginning of the pandemic on this topic. Um, and, um, and, and there was also thought of, should we be prophylactically giving um, any uh, level of blood thinners to patients that are at high risk of uh, either contracting COVID-19 or once they've contracted COVID-19, even if it's mild, should we give them blood thinners or even antiplatelet agents and things like that? And through the pandemic, now that you know we're you know two years plus post, um, there continues to be uh, a lot of focus on this topic, knowing that there are some individuals that will progress to um, uh, this type of hypercoagulable state. Um, and um, unfortunately, as we mentioned here, um, progressing potentially even to, into a long COVID state uh, because of that exact uh, process. Um, it still comes down to a risk-benefit ratio like most things in medicine. So not every patient will benefit from um, full-on, uh, full-dose anticoagulation. Uh, the risk of bleeding may just be too high uh, and the risk may outweigh the benefit. Um, but that's that's still certainly something that needs to be researched further. It would be fantastic to know as a physician which of my patients are more likely to develop those um, those blood clots or those microclots that are going to progress to long COVID or potentially a life-threatening uh, uh, condition. Yeah, critical questions that need to be answered. All right, quick answer. I, I don't expect the answer to be the same for both of you because you read and interpret uh, different literature. How many of those infected by COVID do you think go on to long COVID and are some people predisposed? So quick answers. Uh, Chris, you first. So the CDC currently is saying that their, their, their estimate is around 13%. And again, that's one, there's a range. And, and the range generally is around 10 to 30%. But they're saying around 13% at one month and then about 2.5% at 90 days. And, and I think so with all that in saying all of that, I would say that if you were to get COVID right now, uh, presuming that would be the Omicron variant, that that would be, um, that it would be in the single digits. That was not a short answer, excuse me. Ruby? Um, I actually agree with Chris's uh, 10 to 30%. I, that's, that's been pretty much uh, across the literature as a, as a general figure, um, if, if you had to give the, the short answer. Um, who gets to be on the low end of that, the 10% and who's on the 30% is still up for debate. There's a lot of evidence out there that suggests uh, patients, for example, that are hospitalized that have such severe uh, COVID-19 that they end up getting hospitalized are at a much higher risk of developing long COVID. Uh, up to 30%, uh, one study showed 30% um, chance that they will progress to long COVID at six months if they've been hospitalized. 
Um, there's also been studies to suggest if patients are unvaccinated, that they're more likely to progress to long COVID. Um, subsequent studies have uh, refuted those results, but uh, but again, there's there's evidence to suggest that. So um, certainly, there's more um, uh, more research that's needed to to really look at that. Um, but you know, there's definitely a lot of uh, possibilities out there, Rob, of of what actually plays into their. Uh, uh, being more likely to progress to long COVID. So, and that's consistent with that study that you cited earlier, where about a third of the 600,000 patients uh, were thought to have some form of long COVID. Yeah. And, and, you know, Rob, the other caveat to these percentages that we're giving is uh, we have to keep in mind, first off, that there are many patients out there that either don't have access to testing or have access to testing and have just not tested themselves, right? So they may have had COVID. And um, if they're developing symptoms four plus weeks after that initial set of symptoms that they never tested themselves for, they may not recognize that this is actually long COVID. So they may be getting brain fog. They may be getting a cognitive decline or mild, you know, all these different uh, respiratory symptoms that we're talking about and not realize that that's actually long COVID. Um, so we're probably missing a good portion of the population that has long COVID just because of that, because of not knowing that they had COVID. And then the second part of it is the diagnostic difficulty. Um, as Chris mentioned, these are so many, uh, a range of symptoms, but there's not one specific diagnostic test that I can order to see if my patient actually has this. It's a sequela of symptoms that just fits the definition of being four weeks post the initial infection. So there's a ton of diagnostic difficulty that physicians are dealing with, with trying to de decide if the patients truly have it. So there's likely a, a good portion of the population, again, that have long COVID that we're not recognizing for that reason. I agree, Ruby. And, and I wanted to also address your question, Rob, about who's predisposed. And, and Ruby uh, mentioned people who were vaccinated. The studies, like with all of this, and like with medicine in general, they're, they're messy. It does seem like there's a benefit to being vaccinated in preventing long COVID. Um, there was a large uh, study done out of the St. Louis VA that that suggested that it was around 15%. There have been other studies to show 50%. So it, it seems like there's some benefit. We don't know how much. We know that depending how severe your COVID is, um, that could affect the likelihood of getting COVID. It may seem obvious, but it's also important to know if you've been hospitalized for COVID, if you were in the intensive care unit, your likelihood of getting long COVID, unfortunately, is significantly higher than if you had simply a mild case. Comorbidities such as diabetes and, and obesity, they're going to increase your risk, even when you're controlling for the severity of the COVID itself. And you know, Ruby also alluded to this. Um, there, there are questions about access to care and individual in communities that may have limited access to medical care, whether, you know, setting aside the, the point about uh, the importance of accessing care, whether those communities are, are being exposed to higher loads of the virus and whether that could somehow be resulting in an increased risk for, for long COVID. So again, still a lot that we're learning, but there are, there are variables to consider. Well, thank you both for that. This is a complicated question. And this next last question is equally complex. Um, and that is, once diagnosed to the degree we can, how compromising 
is long COVID? I understand there's a spectrum. Can you describe that spectrum? Rob, you know, when we're looking at these symptoms, I think uh, an angle that we can look at it from is the clinical severity. So are they progressing to the point that they're requiring hospitalization, uh, you know, ventilation support and all those things? Um, that's one side of the, the, the piece is clinical severity, but the other side of it is how much is it affecting their ability to conduct their life? Uh, and that's, I think both are, are certainly important and we can look at it from both of those angles. Um, Chris went over so many of the symptoms that are pretty typical for this long COVID uh, syndrome. And um, as he mentioned, there's a lot of um, uh, neurologic symptoms, psychologic symptoms. Uh, those in and of itself can cause an individual to have uh, to no longer have the mental capacity or the physical capacity to provide childcare, to um, conduct their activities of daily living, um, certainly could affect their ability to continue in their, their job if they're unable to um, you know, really uh, be as functional as they were prior to having COVID-19. Um, so it it's, has significant effects on their ability to conduct their life or to be able to do what they need to do. Um, as you can imagine, a lot of the individuals that are no longer able to work in their position, potentially uh, at the level that they were before. So maybe they they were full-time before and now they have to go to part-time or they have to leave their job altogether. Um, unfortunately, as we all know, that can affect their ability to um, have the healthcare benefits um, that they previously had if they were uh, if they're unable to continue in their position which can further affect their health, right? If they're unable to continue with health insurance and um, healthcare benefits, then um, the, their, their physical health can potentially continue to decline if they're not getting the resources that they need. Um, and as I mentioned on top of that, there's the clinical severity piece of it that uh, you know, if they're continuing with these significant symptoms, um, stroke is a possibility. Um, it could be you know, pretty debilitating neurologic deficits. Um, as well as respiratory and cardiac effects. Um, cardiac effects being arrhythmias um, and heart failure, um, certainly that could be uh, to the point that they're requiring hospitalization uh, and, and um, requiring uh, a lot of medical care as a result of that. Ruby, Chris, um, can you describe where we're heading, what strategies we're looking at, what might be our future addressing long COVID and if there are support systems out there, what those are? Yeah, Rob. So as we've said, there are so much that we need to learn. Um, and, and this is, uh, there. it's a glass half full, glass half empty, I guess you could say. On the one hand, I know that there are literally millions of Americans who are struggling with this condition um, and maybe sensing and feeling a, a certain kind of hopelessness at some point. Uh, that's that's obviously something that that, we uh, we don't have an immediate solution for, but the good news is that that there there are a ton of resources being poured at this problem like never before. Conditions that are similar to this, like as you mentioned before, chronic fatigue syndrome, also called myalgic encephalomyelitis, that some doctors in the past would simply poo-poo, are, are are being given a second look, and so this is not for want of trying. Money efforts and resources. And so my, my exhortation to patients uh, would be see your doctor and, 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 um, and, and look for, for ways to get support, 
I know there are online support groups. There are also different rehab programs for, for lungs. If you're having lung symptoms, there are pulmonary rehab programs that have helped with symptoms. There are autonomic rehab programs. And that, those are symptoms like the dizziness and the, 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 uh, the palpitations that you might be feeling that have been shown to really help to, to lessen, to mitigate these symptoms. And finally, I wanted to share one exhortation with, with um, you know, doctors, our colleagues that, you know, try to cut out the noise. There's a lot of noise out there. Doctors are often caught in the crossfire. But when you see that patient, just do what you do best and, and doctor that patient, hear them have that one-to-one -one interaction. Um, and we know that we're going to get through this. Thank you, Chris. Ruby? I echo Chris's sentiments. There are a lot of resources being poured into this, including a lot of funding for future research. We, we need to answer these questions that Chris and I have been discussing, um, which is what groups are, are more likely to progress to long COVID? How do we better treat it? Um, we want to know all these uh, answers. And so this is um, an important part of, of getting that information, um, you know, knowing the limitations. We've only been in this pandemic, although it seems a very long time, it's only been about two and a half years. Um, we don't have a century worth of, of research and, and data to look at like we do with influenza. Uh, but with this, we have um, quite a bit over the past two and a half years, but certainly there's there's still more to know. Rob, one of the things that I, I think is so important for everyone to remember is although we don't know how specifically to treat long COVID aside from symptom mitigation, um, we know that it can be prevented in getting vaccinated. We know that vaccinations will uh, reduce the chances of contracting COVID-19 and, and developing these significant symptoms. So it is still very important for everyone to stay up to date with their COVID-19 vaccinations in order to prevent uh, potentially long COVID in the future. Well, I wanna thank you, Ruby. Thank you, Chris. It, in spite of all that that is not known, it is all clearer to me now. And uh, it's both fascinating and a little scary. Uh, and thanks to all of you who have joined this podcast. If you have comments about this podcast or suggestions for other podcasts that you'd like to hear, uh, let me know at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you. Thank you.